Hello and welcome to episode 63 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Bobonis, and joining me today is Jordan Williams, co-founder and executive director of the New Zealand Taxpayers Union. Jordan Williams, how are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me, Salvatore. Now, New Zealand has managed one way or another to largely shield itself from COVID-19, but is that going to last? I think that it's very difficult, given that uh, we're the only country in the world that makes Australians' vaccine rollout look not too bad, um, that we're not going to experience something very similar as what is happening in Australia. I think that we will, like the first time around, go into a much harsher lockdown. Uh, New Zealand body politic was panicked uh, in March when they got advice from health officials to say that in comparison to Australia that prepared with things like ventilators and, and medical supplies and masks and gowns um, had, had a proportionately much larger stock take after SARS or learn the lesson from SARS. And uh, the official advice of the government was our health system would quickly collapse and collapse far faster than Australia. My understanding is uh, that that is why um, New Zealand did not go hard, go early, which is Jacinda Ardern's favourite line, we went hard, we went early. We didn't go early, but we went damn hard. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it's New Zealand and Australia. I mean, I recall back then, uh, a lot of New Zealanders, at least on the centre-right, were saying, how come Australia's getting the same results and didn't lock down as hard and didn't shut down as many industries, et cetera? But I think... The less that over the last year, with the exception of the last few months with Delta, is that actually Australia, if anything, has come closer to New Zealand's approach in elimination. Uh, whereas if you had have asked me prior to last year's election, um, uh, eight months ago, I would have said, sorry, 10 months ago, I would have said that after the election, we would tap closer to Australia, which we assessed as a little bit more risk um, uh, a sort of balancing of risk, but that hasn't happened. That I was wrong. The opposite happened. And we are live. Let me say a quick hello to Christopher, Chris, Anthony. Thanks for watching live. We appreciate it. Get your questions in. Uh, we'll get to them in a few minutes. But Jordan, let me ask you then to tell us a little more about what the future holds for New Zealand, because I think many of us in Australia are thinking, as goes New Zealand, so go. We, um, we're hearing about, you know, the travel shutdowns and the isolation of the economy from the world. What's that going to do to the, you know, what does that mean for the, the economy, the government budget, you know, the issues that you guys are concerned with at the New Zealand Taxpayers Union? Yeah, well, it, it's certainly my motivation and, and giving up public law and, and setting up the Taxpayers Union eight years ago, is that if we were a state of Australia, we would now be poorer than Tasmania. And that is unfortunately, that is because there is a complacency with, with public policy. We remind us having a conversation here in the office only this morning that New Zealand and Argentina were the richest countries in the world uh, prior to the uh, Second World War. Post Second World War, our GDP per capita was 95% uh, of, the, um, of the Americans. And we got down in the 80s, I think to 50 or 60%. Uh, that, that, that what gets me up in the morning and um, some of the wonderful work at CIS is that we love our countries, but we don't want our kids to be poor because being in an affluent, um, you know, that 
GDP is terribly unfashionable in the world now of um, so-called well-being economics. But actually, um, being a, a first world or a, a top of the charts nation gives you options. Uh, in terms of where we are now, we are, we're either the smartest country in the world or the dumbest, and that both New Zealand, Australia, and Taiwan, and one or two others taking the elimination approach. Uh, but we won't, probably won't know for a decade whether we're the smartest or the dumbest. But, um, but we certainly are under pressure now, and it does seem that we're one of the last standing in terms of not having, look, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what the, you would know far more about the situation in New South Wales, but looking at it casually every few days, as I do, it's difficult to see how you're gonna get back on top of it. And that means that any, any continuation or reestablishment of the trans-Tasman bubble is stuffed. Sort of the other issues too, um, the relationship between Australia and New Zealand, I, I don't think it has been as poor in my lifetime as it is at the moment. We've got a particularly activist prime minister who um, for if you've got an international audience is equivalent to sort of Justin Trudeau and seems to like to annoy people without sort of thinking through the, the consequences. It's very one dimensional um, uh, approach. I mean, Australia is obviously our closest ally, and yet we have uh, strapped, like you, our economic cart to the China horse, and or the China dragon, rather. And uh, unlike Australia, we have been far less willing to stand up for our traditional values, um, uh, and rather have played along. But even worse, we've made, our ministers have made frankly, stupid comments, criticising your Prime Minister, suggesting that, quote-unquote, Australia could learn from, from New Zealand's approach to China. By learn, they mean play along. And uh, I am saddened um, by that because, in reality, if you, know, you look at the Canadian... I explained to, to international friends that it's like the relationship between Canada and the US. The US doesn't think about Canada. Australia doesn't think about New Zealand, but on the other side, we've got this terrible complex where we will always compare ourselves to Australia. And at least economically, um, um, over the longer, over the, my lifetime, uh, it's, it's pretty poor in, um, in comparison. I was very interested to hear you bring that up because I, I'm a comparative sociologist by trade and you know international comparisons are what I do. And I was very aware that Australia was far behind the US. So I just, while we were talking, looked up the stats quickly. On a purchasing power parity basis, US GDP per capita is around $68,000. This is US dollars uh, a year, whereas Australia is only 55,000 US dollars a year. But you could, you know, and I've always thought of that as, well, yes, that's true, but the U.S. is in a special position in the world. It's a global hegemon. You know, technology networks focus on the U.S. It's not fair in some sense to compare Australia and the United States. But then I looked up Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked to hear, because from what you said, apparently New Zealand is down at 44000 U.S. dollars per capita. That's 20% less than Australia. That's a that's an enormous gap. Uh, and why is New Zealand so far underperforming the Australian economy? Well, it's two things. Um, it's still a hangover of a centralised command economy 
New Zealand um, uh, walked into through the 70s. And effectively, New Zealand went bust. Um, didn't we, we were the, it's just that the, IM, the um, International Monetary Fund was only a, a few days away. Um, uh, we'd run out of, of foreign reserves. And the, uh, the economic reform that occurred in Australia over successive governments and a lot more incremental happened for us under a Labour government elected in 84. Um, and, but it was done out of necessity um, and did the equivalent of the Thatcher or Reagan reforms before they were fashionable. Um, in fact, we led the world on, the ba on uh, inflation targeting and, and, and for the, our independent reserve bank. These, um, we actually had pretty good public policy settings, although the reform stopped. Um, ironically, it was our conservative government, the equivalent of the Australian liberals that got uh, the cold feet. And we've sort of dr um, drifted ever since. Now, our labour market is a little bit more flexible than Australia's. There's not the same level of, of trade union dominance. Um, but while we've, while we, we did have done reasonably well and sailed through the GFC, not too badly, um, although a lot on economic stimulus, partly as a result of our earthquake, only a big earthquake only a few years later. It is fair to say we underperform. And I disagree with you on the, uh, that we should not set our sights on being as wealthy as uh, the US, because the fact is we've been the top of the world. Um, we were with Argentina and there's, there's, it's not clear which one of us um, got to number one. But prior to the Second World War, we were the richest in the world. Uh, and you look at, obviously, Argentina much worse, but public policy matters. And it's the thing that, it's, as I say, it's what gets us up in the morning um, in the think tank world, and, um, or in our case, the pressure group world. And um, we fight for, in our case, a more sli uh, slim-lined, efficient state because that tends to correlate to better economic results um, across, the, across society. Um, we do have a question from Christopher asking if the two major New Zealand parties really only differ in the degree of their embrace of statist policies. That is, there, is there any party in New Zealand landscape that is not a statist political party? And you know, we might ask the same about Australia, but <laughs> let's get you to focus on New Zealand yeah, for there, us. There is one that's act and it's never polled higher um, at the moment, partly because the main opposition party is very weak, is down in the, uh, in the high 20s in the polls, whereas act is sort of, I think, at about 14%, which is, um, which is unbelievably high for a party that, um, except for six years in the late 90s, early 2000s, has tended to be on 1%. Um, they are a classical liberal party in the old, in the old sense of the world uh, word. Um, like the there's a German equivalent, um, um, they're the sort of classical liberal right wing party rather than the, the conservative. There is a small party in Australia that's an equivalent, but I can't I, I can I can't think of the name. Um, but in short, yes, there is. We work on a on a basis that. And it's again, it's it, it, it's the role of groups like ours is to shift where the middle, or the term is the Overton window, which has become very fashionable. But it's basically to adjust the conversation or to to shift the dialogue or lead parades 
to bring what is considered mainstream or down the middle, because the two major parties will tend to follow that median voter. There's some wacky results we get in New Zealand because we have a bizarre um, a proportional representation electoral system, which I'm happy to go into if you like, but it's um, basically it, um, it can result in the tail wagging a dog and that the two parties are basically after elections bid for support of whatever party is in the middle. And I, I think it's particularly egregious because it makes transparency and understanding who's responsible for what very difficult. Um, but it also inherently leads to bigger government because there's never a party in the middle wanting to cut taxes or some the state. It is always trying to buy um, a constituency or their particular constituency, whether it's retirees or um, another example was a party that focused on outdoors um, pursuits, um, uh, rural communities, that it is just, it turns into a bidding war. And it's sort of the equivalent of, um, of pork barrel but it's not done even in geographical, like it's not limited to geographical locations. Well, that, that does uh, actually really prompt, the, or it doesn't prompt the question, but it's, it's very uh, close to the question we've, we've heard from Brian watching today, which is, is what's happening in New Zealand more this kind of pork barrel constituency service that you're describing, or is it a broad society-wide feeling that social support is more important than economic growth, a la Sweden. I mean, are we really looking at a social democracy, a Swedish social democracy in New Zealand, or are we looking at pork barrel politics in New Zealand? Um, I think that it is, no, I, I, I'd put it down to something slightly different. I think one of the reasons why uh, over the last 15 years, New Zealand has been able to take quite deliberate decisions to make us to, for example, protect the environment. Now very much the political direction is towards um, uh, recognition or protection or um, actually co-governance um, with our Maori native people. And um, to the extent that there is actually across whole areas of public policy, provision of water services is the latest that the local councils have traditionally done moving them to bodies that are literally uh, co-governed, meaning 50-50 appointed by um, Maori iwi tribes um, uh, and uh, not actually even democratic, but appointed by democratic bodies um, to run the other half. So that's sort of, that, that's sort of the modern direction. But prior to that, the, the real environmental um, causes we've had, it's, we've pretty well endowed like Australia with incredible natural resources but most of it's tied up and basically if you want to get a um, permit in the South Island most of it's owned by the government you stuffed um, is that New Zealanders the middle class we've actually got a really easy way out and that is move to Sydney um, and it has certainly occurred to me that one day that will be turned off that automatic right to work in Australia and I can't help but wonder if that will wake up or, or focus the minds on the economic um, opportunities in New Zealand, because as we constantly point out, whenever there's a new drug that comes along, it's available in Australia because of this complex that we're always comparing against Australia, that's not available here, or the current one is um, 
is the, the extent to which uh, your health services are poaching our nurses is that how much they're paid more. But when you are a more affluent society, of course, that's, that's the options. And that's often the response when I sort of have, you know, run into left-wing acquaintances and things like that, as I point out that I agree with all of these things, but you don't get there by, putting, by just paying the nurses more is not an answer when, as you say, the GDP per capita is just materially higher, that Australia can have higher wages because you can afford to. Um, yeah, I was really shocked to see the comparison. I knew New Zealand wasn't quite keeping up. I didn't realize the gap was so large. Um, now, all those of you watching are probably aware Center for Independent Studies is a membership-supported organization. Uh, the independent in the middle of the name is there because the Center for Independent Studies does not take government contributions or sponsored research funding. It's all based on member contributions. Now, neither Jordan nor I are being paid to do this program, but the producers are being paid, the facilities have to be paid for. Uh, CIS does need your support to keep programs like this on the air. Uh, there's a link in the chat box. We'd love to have your contribution. If you're already a member, thank you. Uh, but even if you are already a member, you know, consider that at this time, contributions are down because of the coronavirus stress. And if you are in a position to contribute, I'd really appreciate it if you click that button and you know, throw in an extra $20 or $50 to help out the Center for Independent Studies. Every bit helps. Um, can, speaking can of I, members can, and how much... Can I just add to that? The CIS were a huge influence for me in getting involved in public policy. Um, and that was a, your student programs, particularly Liberty and Society and then advanced Liberty and Society about um, five or 10 years later, it resulted in lifelong friendships, but exposed me to ideas. And probably the reason I'm a classical liberal. Um, and so I just, it is, you guys do such great work, particularly work with, with training, the, you know, in the next generation of freedom fighters um, that, and having run a think tank or a lobby group in the context of a lockdown and knowing very well the sleepless nights, I just want to back that up and say, if you can do chip, do chip in, because it's a worthy cause. Well, thanks, Jordan. Uh, much appreciated. And because we are a membership-driven organization, we don't have an agenda being imposed on us by government or by a big donor. Uh, we do care what the members think. And because we care what the members think, Jordan, I'm going to feed through to you a question from a loyal member, Anthony, backed up by another loyal member, Chris. They both want to know your view on the use of ivermectin and the specific question is there's there's evidence there's evidence that the proper use of ivermectin substantially reduces the adverse effects of COVID-19 I might broaden that to say there's evidence that there's lots of treatments that may be available that even if people get COVID-19 we can do better at treating them he want they want to know what is New Zealand's approach to the use of this drug, or if you're not that familiar with ivermectin, what's New Zealand's approach to COVID treatment in general? Anything, any light you can shed on this for us, much appreciated. There is no light on it. Um, the I have only ever seen it talked about once in the New Zealand context. I understand that we are very much behind the, the curve. The short order is we've had so few patients um, with it um, and very few deaths that it sort of hasn't really been relevant. I um, became very interested in that question very early on um, in the pandemic, but I, 
I, and because I'm not a medical professional and my, um, my partner is, I'd get told off I've expressed much of, much of a view. But I, among my uh, preparedness, I became very panicked about COVID, partly because it, it um, coincided with uh, becoming a father. And when your risk preferences change, I was right going through that in February last year. And so I, I've never been a prepper. I'm, I'm here in Wellington and I didn't even have an emergency kit, which given the earthquake threats here is nuts. But I totally prepped. And I had among, with my oxygen machine and generator and things like that, I had ivermectin. <laughs> so <laughs> we believe in, in revealed preferences are more, uh, are more um, revealing than expressed. Well, I, I'm not willing to express anything and I don't know whether I'd, but I certainly thought at the time, I thought the evidence is uncertain. And by the time it's certain, you won't be able to get it. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad to hear you have a generator because of course we've heard uh, here on the other oh, side yeah. about the recent blackouts <laughs> in New Zealand. And ex-Kiwi Chris, uh, who still has family in New Zealand, wants to know your thoughts about New Zealand energy policy and particularly the restarting of the Huntley coal-fired power station. Now, that's what I can talk about because my background career is in, um, uh, uh, in regulatory economics. And, and I used to actually act for, was a very junior, as a baby lawyer for the major electricity users, um, which used about a third of New Zealand's electricity. And for my sins, was really involved in the very technical regulation or price regulation um, uh, of, uh, of electricity. Was one of the few things reformed by the national government after that. Labor government that did all the big reforms um, and it's market-based separation of the uh, generators which run on a competitive commercial model, the natural monopoly which is an, a state-owned enterprise, the uh, transmission and then distribution is, is similar although geographically different companies and then a competitive uh, um, retailers. Um, and what happened yesterday, or sorry, day before yesterday, was simply that the this government has come in and likes to tinker, or actually it's not very good at tinkering, but they like to say they're going to, and have totally decimated the uh, any incentive to invest because they are umming and ahhing about an enormous white elephant of pumped hydro, basically that every once every ten years we have dry years and um, probably. Uh, you know, economists and lawyers like to worry about risks and politicians want to go plate. But um, we do sometimes get dry years and we are reliant on hydro. Because of this, uh, the, this threat of this big um, pumped hydro project, because it's virtually impossible now under our planning laws to, to consent any major construction projects like the dams, um, most of the new generation has been in wind, which is sometimes it doesn't blow, even here in Wellington occasionally, and, um, and geothermal. Um, geothermal, there's been quite a lot of growth, which is good because that's pretty reliable um, uh, uh, in the central North Island. So, I mean, cut a long story short, um, that undermining of investment is probably the reason why we're seeing a lot of, a lot of squeezes, and the other is simply bad luck um, on the... I mean, let's put this in perspective. We're a country of four and a half million people and uh, um, and 
we had 20,000 households go out for about an hour or two. Look, that hasn't, ha I can't recall that happening, at least in my professional career. Um, the alternative is you throw billions and billions at gold plating. And I've certainly seen lots of areas of the industry where that happens because when something, when a light goes out, politicians want to come in. I used to act for the consumer guys and they were very scared of gold plating. And I always thought that the risk, um, the, the rational investment, they probably would, would be better at determining than a political economy and politicians. We, we have to start wrapping up, but you mentioned white elephants and I can't let you get away <laughs> without asking you about Auckland's billion dollar bicycle bridge. Now, that's alliterative. I know it's not budgeted a billion dollars quite, 750 million. Yeah, it's not quite, but it's, it's close to. Yeah. But there'll be overruns. <laughs> so yeah. let's call it the billion dollar bicycle bridge. Um, any thoughts about that? It's, you asked what's driving it earlier and, and where I was going to land on is it's just become a lot more tribal and identity politics. And one of those identities which is overly represented, at, represented in the political elite are these bloody cyclists, these lycra-wearing boomers. And um, uh, as you can tell, I've got nothing against them. But basically, a sophisticated PR campaign from a very small group of people and a protest of a whole lot of old people that shut down our Harbour Bridge by marching across it and on bikes has somehow managed the situation. Originally, it was supposed to be a sort of $5 million project, which was just a tap on a bike lane onto the Harbour Bridge. Apparently, that's not engineeringly possible. So we literally, when we do not, it is the absolute bottleneck of Auckland's traffic, that Harbour Bridge. And instead of doing a tunnel like Sydney did or, or doing another bridge, they're talking about a $750 million cycle bridge. I've been running this organization for eight years. We have never had the recruitment and the number of people come on board for anything like that campaign. And it was people, my partner's a pediatric intensive care nurse, and she told me her whole ward were furious with this bridge because they are struggling, for, they have to go and fundraise um, for, um, for it. And it was such a just small section, but well-connected section of the community that Labour are tied to. And it actually, it, that is what will get this government into trouble, that the people that they're in, anyone could have told you that was a political um, danger, but the people they surrounded themselves with are in a very small clique and elite that they think that this is what, I mean, it was worse than that. They cancelled major roading projects for a cycle bridge that will benefit one affluent suburb, basically, it's nuts. But if you, um, yeah, if you jump on our website and, and, and add your name, if you, if you want to stop it, and the government is actually, appears to be backing down on it. They haven't totally scrapped it yet, but um, even the slick PR campaign on this one, it's, it, it, it's uh, very tenured. Jordan Williams, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian. Uh, executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. Next week, we will have ABC anchor Stan Grant on talking about his 2020 book, On Identity. Come join us on On Liberty. We hope.